Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, fearmongers. Lewis is away this week, so I've got a new co-host. Her name is Lynn Doe. Welcome, Lynn. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Ready to start my squatting period. <laughs> I'm not leaving. <laughs> yeah, are you gonna you gonna hang in this co-host seat and like push? I don't think Lewis is coming back. Um, I don't think he's been told the news yet. So, hi, Lewis. Are you just saying that because he's gone on a road trip to Byron Bay and you think Pete Evans might have killed him? Potentially, and it's also jealousy. I haven't left my home in like however many months now. It's it's envy for anyone who can. Yes, if you're traveling, stuff you. Who cares? Big shout out to our two new Patreon fright mongers, uh, Preet Chabra and Hayden Shaw. Thank you very much. It might not seem like a lot, but three bucks US a month actually helps us pay for the editor and hosting, which is quite expensive. Eventually we'll have to get to about a thousand bucks a month. That would cover pretty much most of the pod. Then if we can double that, we can start to pay people on it. And then if we get to about $10,000 a month, we can start making videos. There's so much we want to do. Chip in if you can. Uh, and if you do become a member of the Patreon, you get access to the Discord. The Discord is like Slack for nerds uh, and it's great. You can, you, I'm in there every every day spitballing ideas for this show. So you can come and talk to, talk to me as I put this script together. Now, now, at the end of this podcast, I've got a special announcement about a special monthly show we are going to be doing on this feed. So hang in there. I can't wait to tell you all about it. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation, fighting for a more just world. I'm recording my end of irrational fear on the land of the Gadigal in the Yora Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. Let's start the show. A rational fear contains naughty words like Brexit, Canberra, Fed, Come, and Section 44. A rational fear recommends listening by immature audiences. Tonight, after Wimbledon champ Pat Cash shared COVID-19 conspiracy theories on social media, many Australians are forced to admit that Lake Jewett isn't that bad. And Scott Morrison promises that the COVID-19 vaccine 
will need to reach 95% of the population will be voluntary, just like how paying tax is voluntary for that other virus, Rupert Murdoch. And Australia is still in winter, but bushfire season has started again, prompting climate deniers around the country to dust off their copies of Dorothy McKellar's Sunburnt Country and practising the phrase, see, we've always had them. It's the 21st of August 2020, which is news to me. This is a rational fear. A rational fear! Hello and welcome to Rational Fear. I'm celebrity chef turned idiot Dan Illich and joining me to digest and excrete this week's news are a whole bunch of new fear mongers. First up, she was named one of Australia's most 100 women of influence, but having just checked her Instagram, I've not seen one sponsored post for any magical anti-5G smoothie. (laughs) It's Jamila Rizvi. No one wants me to advertise their smoothies. It's not fair. Well, what I want to know is how do you walk the fine balance of being a person of influence without becoming an influencer? I don't know. I think it takes a lot of talent to be this unpopular with sponsors, but I can do it, Dan. I'm quite special. And our next fearmonger is a returning friend of the show. She's a comedian, author and saddest because, let's face it, she willfully crossed state borders and quarantined herself for 14 days in Adelaide, where she is currently right now. It's Rosie Waterland. Hello. Yes, I am uh, one week into my quarantine and going a bit loopy, so I might be a bit of a loose cannon. (laughs) Rosie, is 14 days in quarantine in Adelaide, will it be worth it? (sighs) Well, I mean, once I'm set free, let's see, but I will say that um, I've moved into my new boyfriend's house and I'm decorating in a way that brings both our tastes together. We've got model boats over this side, poly pockets over this side, so together... It's quite an eclectic little uh, little den I've built here. That is absolutely beautiful. And in the co-host chair, for the very first time, with someone who isn't afraid to look fear in the face because she's worked, worked with Al Gore, it's fellow Bertha fellow, Lindo. Lynn, is Al Gore scary or is it just the name? Just the name and also not tall enough to make eye contact. So I think that helps with um, not being as fearful. <laughs> I tend to just be like tilting up and it's not quite the same. Coming up a little later on, we're going to be talking to Monica Tan. She's in the Northern Territory. The Territory elections are this weekend and we'll just find out how climate politics is playing out there and what happens if you smile at a crocodile. But first, a word from our sponsor. Stand by for an announcement about announcements from the Commonwealth of Australia. The federal government has secured a COVID-19 vaccine for all Australians. Is what we hope you picked up from the news this week. We haven't yet, but we announced it. How good would that be? Just like the $2 billion National Bushfire Recovery Fund that only existed in your brain the moment we announced it. Now that's science. And not to mention getting the arts industry back on their feet with a coronavirus stimulus package that we haven't delivered. That was a really good announcement. We did it ages ago. Guy Sebastian was there and he looked sad. The federal government announcing things because doing things is the state's responsibility. Spoken by Rupert Degas. My soul is being crushed because I have to read these ads to stay alive regardless of my own political opinion. It's always good to have that government money. Fear number one, it's boom time if you run an anti-vax conspiracy theory Facebook group. Earlier this week, the Prime Minister, in a sentence, managed at once to placate the anti-vaxxers and yet reassure the rest of us that he is a politician. He said that the vaccination is going to be mandatory as possibly as you can make it with exceptions on medical grounds. And then that sent the anti-vaxxers in a bit of a tizzy, into a bit of a, a, a tailspin. 
Then he set the record straight later on that day on radio saying, there's going to be no compulsory vaccine. What we want is to achieve as much vaccination as we possibly can. I don't know if that was any clearer. Um, uh, let, me, let me try and translate. Basically, you have to do it if you want to do it. Um, or you'll be required to do it if you choose to, or make no bones about it, the government can force you to willingly opt out. I don't know how more clear I can be other than saying it's going to be mandatory, voluntary. Jamila, is this mandatory, voluntary vaccine going to work? Yeah, I think it definitely will because it's going to be as compulsory as the COVID Safe app, which, like, <laughs> has solved no COVID cases at all, hasn't found anyone yet. Actually, I think they found one last week, so we've got to update our statistics. One, well done. I hope it was worth the cash. Who's going to be getting it? Lynn, are you going to be getting this vaccine? Of course I am. I didn't realise vaccines were ever voluntary, except for the chickenpox vaccine. I didn't realise that was even a thing. It's so strange that, you know, you know, we've got three people on this podcast who are effectively in lockdown. And when you see anti-vaxxers in Queensland saying that they're against it, how does it make you feel, Rosie Waterloo? Oh, look, I was reading something today about, uh, oh, who's that uh, girl who used to be on Home and Away? Isabel Lucas. She's gone total crazy anti-vax and I think they just believe any post they see on Facebook. I mean, she said that she used to hate Donald Trump, but then she saw someone post on Facebook that he's a light holder, which means he's been put on this earth to protect people. So now she's pro-Trump. And I honestly think it's just one convincing Facebook posts and off they go. I've been part of this QAnon Facebook spiral for a little bit. I've been, I've been uh, subscribing to a lot of them, reading a lot of their posts, one post the other day said that Donald Trump knows secret knowledge about cancer and he's going to, and he's going to cure cancer and he's got everything he needs to cure cancer if he gets in this election. There is, how do you even, how do you even campaign against such lies? Because it doesn't even exist. <laughs> Jamila, that's a good question for you as someone who's worked on campaigns. Well, I, I mean, only Donald Trump would have the cure for cancer but hold off on giving it to the world <laughs> till he got re-elected, right? He is literally the only person that would actually do that. Um, I have given up making any proper commentary on American politics because it actually makes no sense to me and any prediction I make turns out to be untrue. But I've got to say, when it comes to vaccinations, I was really excited when the Prime Minister said that this would be kind of at the more mandatory end of the mandatory spectrum that he's currently playing around mm. on because my kid is not al- is allowed to go to kinder without vaccinations but he's not allowed to take a peanut butter fucking sandwich. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I'm like I'm really over it. Vaccinate your children, people. Vaccinate your children. Vaccines are excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Vaccines are what, the what? reason that I was allowed to have one child and not 11 because most of them would die from diseases very young. They could have simplified that messaging in the last couple of days by just saying have a jab to get a jab. That makes sense, right? Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Jam, I really liked your observation that uh, the federal government thinks that mandatory is a spectrum. Yeah, apparently. I mean, it's certainly changed a lot over the day. And your summary, Dan, actually made more sense to me than what the Prime Minister's been saying. So bravo <laughs> to you. Okay, now Pauline Hanson, she is Australia's biggest anti-faxer. She's also an anti-vaxer. She's got some strong feelings on this one. We are going to play Hang On A Sec. When you want to butt in, and add something to what she's saying, just yell out, hang on a sec, and I'll pause the tape. Here we go. I heard the news today about the PM wanting to introduce a mandatory vaccination for COVID-19. Hang on a sec. He didn't do that. 
for all Australians, <laughs> or at least he wants 95% of Australians. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm not happy about this. I'm quite angry about it because you have no right to say, I have to have this vaccination. Hang on a sec. He does have a right to say that. He's the Prime Minister of Australia. Mm-hmm. Because I'll tell you what, I won't be having it. Well, hang, hang on a sec. Uh, she is refusing an optional vaccine that doesn't exist. <laughs> oh, look, I just think that if, you know, Australia's most famous racist says that she doesn't want to vaccinate herself against a possibly deadly virus, I don't mind that much. <laughs> Vaccination, that's my choice. Even though Hang I'm on a sec. So it's her choice to not get a vaccination, but she's still pro-life and won't let women choose what they do with their own bodies? Ooh. To put a vaccine into my body that hasn't been tested, it's not happening. Of course that's not happening. What's happening is you're going to get a vaccine that has been tested. That's the whole point. That's, that's what we we're talking about. The vaccine has been tested. When it gets here, you can optionally use it. In her, in her defence, though, Dan, she doesn't really need the vaccination because she owns a full-body mask in the form of a burqa <laughs> that she once wore into the Australian Senate. So she just doesn't need it. That is my choice, and I'm just telling you out there and the PM, I will not have it. You will not force me to have it. It will be my choice what I do. What is going to be your decision? Hang on a sec. Shut up, Pauline. (laughs) Irrational fear. We have a disease. We vaccinate ourselves against it. Islam is a disease. We need to vaccinate ourselves against that. Your fear is rational. Fear number two at the National Press Club this week, Natasha Stott-Despoia shone the spotlight on domestic violence, but um, we know that stories about DV aren't exactly popular with the Daily Mail set, so she dropped a reference that made us all stop and think about the standards we accept on our television. Rosie, what did Natasha Stott-Despoia reference at the National Press Club? (laughs) Well, she, uh, as the chairperson of Our Watch, was, of course, talking about domestic violence, and she was talking about uh, how inherent sexist attitudes can be the seeds that lead to that violence against women. And she referenced a little example on a show you might have heard of called Bachelor in Paradise. Uh, Our very good friend Kieran, who's now known as Australia's number one fuckboy, slept with all the girls on the island and then they brought in his ex-girlfriend to rattle him a bit and every time she tried to get close to someone, he would go up to that man and say, you have to ask my permission if you want to date someone that I've dated. He got very possessive, was basically treating women like property. And Natasha threw that little reference into her speech, I think, to um, illustrate the point that this is something on mainstream TV that young men, boys, older men watch, and that can influence the way they think about women. And you know what? I haven't been more interested in politics in months. Loved it. (laughs) What other kind of bachelor moments can affect policy in meaningful ways? I don't know about meaningful ways, but it certainly seems like they're influencing policy already. I mean, if you have a look at how they um, only have people of colour as tokens, well, that kind of reflects the way our government works, doesn't it? I mean... That's kind of how The Bachelor goes, but I just love it when politicians attempt to do anything pop cultural. I mean, it either lands really well like it did with Natasha and got people thinking or it's embarrassing and makes us all laugh, like when Bill Shorten called ScoMo a simp. I forgot the (laughs) simp moment for this show. I totally forgot the simp moment. Oh, oh God, Bill. Um, (laughs) Let me ask you some questions, folks. Like I'm going to name some reality TV shows and I want you to tell me the policy that they could affect 
in, in the Australian government. So what do we think who dares wins can affect? <laughs> I don't think I was really around for who dares wins. I feel like I need a show recap. Um, I think it's actually about boat people um, coming to Australia. I think, you know, if they take the risk to get here, they could, you know, who dares wins. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh, uh, yeah. Or what about house rules? House rules, how can that affect policy? God, I don't, well, I have no possibility of ever owning a house in my lifetime, so I can't even think of a joke for that one. That's depressing. That makes sense. Who owns house already ruled? <laughs> the land, the, it's a landlord statement. Uh, married at first sight, how could that affect policy in any kind of meaningful way? Dutton, he said, you know, that if gay people can get married, where will that lead? Well, married at first sight, I don't know. Maybe that could influence uh, marriage policy in some way in his worst nightmares. Really? Married at first sight is truly the thick end of the wedge, isn't it? <laughs> I really think so. When you're talking about the slippery slope, though, I think this could be in relation to Zali Stegel and Adam Bant. You know, they will see each other, they fall in love, oh, and make yes. policy together. Uh, porn stars Australia. This is porn stars Australia. <laughs> is that a show? Well, not not P O R. Not yet. Porn not is yet. P A W N. Porn stars. Hey, that could influence policy, entrepreneurship, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, all of those things. I mean, yeah. that's where it's at. It's totally true. And what about Australian Idol? Hmm. I actually think it's kind of, I think Australian Idol's kind of like um, Scott Morrison's re-election campaign, um, just focusing on himself. He's going to, he is <laughs> Irrational fear! Mr Morrison needs to make sure that he doesn't look like he's just a simp on this very important issue. Irrational fear. No, soft. Fear number three, it has been two years since Greta Thunberg uh, said, stuff it, I'm not going to school anymore until this climate change shit is under control and she hasn't been back. Instead, she's schooled us in the climate crisis. Um, But in those two years, we've seen record temperatures, more frequent and extreme weather events like floods, fires and things like that across the world. The Arctic and Siberia was on fire this year and Australia in its recent fires lost three billion animals. You know, if I was on Sky News right now, I'd say something like, well, if you ask me, these things weren't happening when she was in school. Greta Thunberg must go back to school so the world can return back to normal. But um, that would be that would be terrible. Lynn, as a close <laughs> climate watcher, what effect has the school strike for climate had on the world's discussion of climate change? I mean, everyone's engaged now from young people all the way through to like grandparents and parents. I feel like I've spoken to so many people who have that privilege of taking their kids to their first protest ever at the school climate strikes last year, um, which I think was a really heartwarming moment. It definitely made me feel like a dinosaur. And I was there not really as a young person anymore, but also not as a parent. So I felt a little bit like a lurker. It was a little bit creepy. Um, Should have gone with friends. But I think that... Two years feels like a really long time, but I was looking back um, the other day and there was this op-ed that I wrote like seven years ago that basically said a lot of the same things that Greta was saying today. And I was like, oh, it turns out things haven't changed. Seven years, two years. It seems that decision makers just don't want to listen. How, I mean, how does that make you feel knowing that, you know, you've been saying the same things that Greta's been saying since Greta was 10 years old? Um, yeah, definitely like a dinosaur. That's all I took away from it. Like, I think I'm more sad that I'm old rather than sad that we haven't fixed the climate problem yet, which is like a bit <laughs> selfish, I recognise, but um, that's where I'm at in lockdown. Jam, how do you feel about the, uh, the school strike for climate? 
Uh, well, I went to the school strikes. I went with my little boy who wasn't in school yet, but hey, I'm a lefty always looking for a platform. And so me and my cute kid, we made a sign and we went to the protests. And uh, turns out we haven't saved Nemo yet, but my son's moved on and he's playing a lot of Transformers. So he's happy. Rosie, how do you feel about school strike for climate? Do you think it's it's raised the consciousness of everyone about, clim- about the climate crisis? I think it, it has and was until, just like it's ruined everything else, along came COVID. And I did notice the other day a tweet from Greta and it was just something about, you know, her very impassioned words about something that was going on with the climate, some other animal that had died. And I was just like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I forgot the climate was a thing. There's <laughs> too much going on. I felt bad. And she's, she's like devoted her life to it and, and was incredibly like uh, famous in the spotlight for like this really um, intense sort of moment in time. And then everyone was like, okay, no thanks. And we're putting everything back in plastic. We can't reuse anything. Um, and so now things are kind of getting, kind of getting worse. Don't you think? How how do we engage people on the climate crisis while we're in lockdown? Well, I will say you referenced Sky News and, as you know, my boyfriend, Caleb Bond, is a regular Sky News commentator and here's the thing, I'm infiltrating from the inside. By the time I'm done with him, he's going to be leader of the Greens and so before he goes in every week, I just plant little seeds in his brain and you know what? Maybe Sky News will become the climate change uh, network. What you've done for Caleb's brand as well, Rosie, is quite <laughs> remarkable. Reading his tweets now, I'm like, I can see how measured they are these days. I'm like, yeah, he's put some thought into that one. Well, he's also just, you know, growing and maturing and learning because I yell at him. You are sitting in front of a bunch of Polly Pockets that you own and a model boat that Caleb owns. I want you to get some ice cubes from the freezer and just put them all around the boat so they melt and just ruin the damn boat. (laughs) This is a rational fear. Get your democracy sausages ready. It's election weekend this weekend in the Northern Territory. They have 25 seats of their unicameral parliament. They're all up for grabs. It's a three-cornered race. Territory Labor in one, Country Liberal Party in another, and a crocodile named Barry in the third one. And to tell us how climate politics is shaping retail politics in the Territory is Monica Tan, who runs Repower NT. G'day, Monica. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, good. Now tell us about the story of how climate change is kind of all of a sudden on the agenda for every party in the Northern Territory. Yeah, although I would add uh, they don't necessarily use that phrase that much. So that's been the unique thing about the campaign. We've been running Repower NT. Um, I like to call it a climate campaign that never talks about climate. Um, <laughs> we like we like to talk about how renewable energy creates jobs, it lowers power prices, it's going to transform the NT economy, and that's been extremely um, effective. Tell us how big is the NT? Is it you know hard to kind of affect change there? Uh, so it's huge by landmass, small by population. So we have about, I don't know, 230,000 people. Wow. Um, yeah, which is kind of, you know, the same population as Northwest Sydney, which is where I used to live before. I, I think that many Sydney. people came to my 21st. <laughs> yeah, so it's a <laughs> tiny population spread out over an incredible landmass. Um, you know, I'm living in Darwin on one end, Alice Springs is at the other end, and that's a three days drive away. So uh, it's 1,500 k's away. So you've got this um, incredibly beautiful 
remote um, place with a kind of um, a really strange assortment of um, locals and it creates a very unusual politics up here. When you say unusual politics, what do you mean by that? So, I, you know, I think one of the things that you've got to remember is that each seat only has 5,000 people. We've only got 25 seats. We don't have an upper house. We have, um, you know, we have this uh, multicultural population. We have 30% of our population is Indigenous people. Um, among the non-Indigenous people, you have a huge number of um, people who are there for a short period of time. You know, they might come up to be a public servant. They might work in the, the gas industry and, fingers crossed, the renewable energy industry. Is, like, so, every industry in Northern Territory FIFO? Like, everything is fly, fly out? It, well, exactly. So there's that, that whole FIFO culture um, really affects the politics. It means people have extremely short, you know, goldfish-style memories when it comes to, to politics. Um, because you have such small seats or s small constituents, um, basically... As long as a candidate shakes enough hands, goes to enough barbecues, um, you know, kisses enough babies, they actually have a good shot of getting in, no matter what their politics, no matter what their platform, um, no matter how insane our politics has been in terms of, uh, like, you know, politicians changing parties, leaving parties, backstabbing each other, um, you name it, it's happened here in the territory. Is the territory like a microcosm of Australian politics on the whole, or is it? Uh, it's a kind of a microcosm of a really dysfunctional council, is how <laughs> I like to think of it. So you don't necessarily have um, people with incredible experience uh, with you know massive trade deals or managing big Fortune 500 companies. You don't have um, you know bankers and lawyers. You have. Yeah, you have people who have done other kinds of jobs, lots of public servants, um, and they they get into politics a, a lot for ego, a lot for um, because I, I you know what that's not fair. There's a lot of good. There's a lot. Of, <laughs> I have to be careful. It's such a swear place here. I need to watch out. Um, there's a lot of good people who. who if you're listening to this on um, on election day, oh. Monica Tan was murdered. Uh, <laughs> He hasn't been seen since. Um, now how how hard is it to as a campaigner there to affect change? So you, tell us a little bit about your campaign over the last couple of years and and how you've been managed, how you've managed to kind of have these conversations. Yeah. Um, so I'm so honoured to to run Repower NT. We came up here because or we started this campaign up here in, in the territory because we recognised that there was a strong um, anti fracking, anti gas. Um, you know, pro-climate action um, campaigns, but we hadn't really articulated what we want for the territory, which I think is pretty typical in the environmental movement. Very good at saying, no this, no that, anti this, anti that. But what is it that you really want? You know, what is what excites you? What kind of Australia do you want? What kind of territory do you want? Mm. So we um, teamed up with Beyond Zero Emissions. We produced a 60-page report that showed if we invested in 10 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2030, we could create 8,000 new jobs, 2 billion in new annual revenue. And, and that's the message we've been going out to the political parties, to voters, that renewable energy will um, transform the NT. It will create jobs. It will um, create energy independence, energy resilience. I mean, that's something that really resonates with uh, territorians who like to think 
we, we like to think of ourselves as very different from you Southerners. You don't get it. Um, you know, we like to live off the grid. We, you know, we, you know, it's a little bit sort of wild, wild west out here. And that idea of renewable energy being a local type of energy you can generate yourself um, is immune to all this crazy COVID shit that's going on out there. You know, these kinds of messages have been, yeah, um, I think have really worked in this election. In terms of changing people's minds, like what, how do you physically do that? Like how do you kind of corner someone to kind of change their position on something? Yeah, um, I, you know, what's been remarkable is to see conservative parties get on with a lot of our ideas. And I think that we've done that because we haven't taken a traditional lefty, protesty um, way of doing that. Instead, we've um, done a very high visible advertising and information campaign. We've had lots of one-on-one coffees with um, CLP and Territory Alliance, the Conservative Party candidates. We've had very frank conversations. We've, you know, shown them that report, shown them that there's, you know, solid numbers behind these ideas. We've tried to um, decode some of those myths that um, occur around um, renewable energy. We've been very frank about the issues, uh, the, the challenges that renewable energy does pose to a fossil, you know, fuel-based grid. And they've, you know, respected that we have that kind of authority and that kind of, um, you know, willingness to reach out to that side of politics and just, you know, get to it and, and sort of show what renewable energy can do for Territorians. So the election is this weekend. Uh, how do you feel about renewables and climate politics for this election coming through? Like, how do you feel about, what's your gut instinct telling you how, how it might roll out? So I feel very good about renewable energy policies. Um, we deliberately use the carrot instead of the stick. Uh, the climate side of things, I feel still good because all parties did come out saying they believe in climate change, in human induced climate change. They do believe that we have to take action but they, you know, some of those parties didn't quite go far enough with the commitments that we were looking for. Um, Labor and the CLP are both still pro-fracking. They're both still pursuing gas policies. So there's, you know, definitely work to be done. But for me, um, after, you know, I've been a climate campaigner for over a decade now. It's been extremely depressing being a climate campaigner here in Australia yeah. to, to to have this win, um, what I consider a win, to have all four main political parties uh, putting out extremely strong competitive renewable energy policies, uh, I can't tell you. It's just been a revelation. <laughs> well, f- first of all, I think that's a pretty great position to be in for yourself. I think that's great. Um, I'm really <laughs> it, must, it must be heartening for you. <laughs> mm, definitely. What's the craziest thing you've seen in NT politics since in your time up in the NT? Well, we currently have a sitting government that has not pretty much not put down any policies. So they, um, our uh, chief minister, Michael Gunner, he, his whole election platform has been, I've saved you from COVID. You're in the safest, uh, safest place in Australia. They've, They've, you know, released all their policies ex- extremely late. The policies are very, very light on actual plans for the next wow. four years. So it's for me, it's like it's absolutely strange to have 
you know, a sitting government not really show us what they're planning to do. And probably it's going to, to work, to be honest. So it's, it's actually a very smart strategy. If they, I mean, before COVID, they're extremely vulnerable. We have an $8 billion debt problem here in the territory. I mean, it, the economy is totally up shit creek. You know, this is a sort of boom and bust place and we are way into the bust. Mm. Um, there was there was a lot of criticisms of this government and then, you know, COVID hit and it's been Gunner's sort of, it's just been like manner from the heaven for him because he was, he was definitely in trouble and now he has done a good job with COVID. He has kept the territory safe and in a time of great anxiety that's all anyone really cares about people won't remember the eight billion dollars worth of debt the state's in um <laughs> they remember it but it's all getting a bit mixed up with with covid problems now you know it's a little bit hard to untangle the two and it's it's a little bit like you know we're not the only ones in debt anymore the whole bloody country's in debt so jamila i saw your eyes go wide when um when monica said there was only five thousand people in a seat <laughs> yeah because all right like think of it this way right there are seats in when we have a federal election where sometimes they're only won by like 100 votes right and there are jokes it's like oh you know you get a couple of big Indian families like mine together and you can totally move that seat. You could just get my household. You could just get the three of us and you could win a seat up in the Northern Territory. Sounds really, uh, I'm quite into it. <laughs> yeah, and the, the swings are insane. Like the swings. Time to move. 23%, they go one way and then the other way. It's completely unpredictable. Lynn says um, it's time for me to move. I literally am not allowed. They don't want me. They don't want me in my disgusting Victorianness. There is a bit of that. I hate to say it, the dirty southerners. With your dirty city germs. Uh, <laughs> Mon, you say that, but haven't you how long have you been living in the Northern Territory? Oh, I started calling myself a Territorian five days after I arrived here. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, was slightly to my advantage as a campaigner, but I, I, I just feel it. Like, I actually love this place. And that's a true test if you're a Territorian or not. It's really the degree to which you love this place. Um, and people, there's, it attracts a certain kind of person who just, it, who just does not fit in um, in big cities. Mon, tell us, um, folks are going to be listening to this over Friday, Saturday and Sunday, um, which is either before or after the election, but tell us one thing that people should look out for this weekend for this election. Um, so look out for a party called Territory Alliance. Um, as per insane NT politics, it is being led by a former chief minister, former Liberal Party chief minister, He's got um, two other sitting members in his party and a whole bunch of other candidates. Both of those sitting members, one is former Labor, one is former Liberals, um, they, 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 they keep saying that they're not conservative, they're not conservative, um, but they're definitely not progressive. So they're attempting to walk this fine line between those two parties and they are possibly going to be the kingmakers. So it's possible neither CLP nor Territory Alliance nor Labor will get enough numbers. Um, Territory Alliance, 
you know, Terry Mills is just desperate to be relevant again. He will sign up with either side that I will, I will swear on my firstborn child that he is willing to go into a coalition with, with anyone just to get back into power. So who knows what's got- going to happen? If we've learned anything tonight, Monica, it's that Terry should should, should audition for Bachelor in Paradise. <laughs> so apparently, can... apparently, um, one of the journalists that used to be on here, Ben Smee, I think he's at the Guardian now. He, um, when with the Bachelor, he he pitched um, Bachelor in Paradise of this tiny town called Bachelor here in the NT. It was just then <laughs> from the town of Bachelor. And I just think that that would, that that would honestly make an incredible show. Would watch. <laughs> That's it for Irrational Fear. Jacob Round is cutting this on the Teppanyaki timeline. Big thanks to Rupert Dagas. Uh, and we've got time to plug some things. Uh, anybody want to plug anything? Jam, you got anything to plug? Uh, yeah, I've got a, a children's book coming out in about two months called I'm a Hero 2, which is about helping little kids deal with their emotions around what's happening with coronavirus and there are no bad squiggly pictures of green spiky balls in it. Ha-ha! Buy it! <laughs> Amazing. Rosie Waterland, what do you want to plug? Uh, well, uh, my podcast, Just the Gist, uh, comes out every Friday at 11am. It's where I just give my friend Just the Gist, just enough to get you, to make you sound smart at a dinner party about all kinds of weird and wonderful things. So, uh, have a listen to that wherever you get your potties. Monica Tan, what are you plugging? I'm going to plug Reparenty, of course. Um, yeah, jump on our website and check out the work we've been doing up here in the territory. And Lindo, do you have anything to plug? Nothing to plug, not a kid, but keen for Jam's book. So I'm um, ready to read myself some COVID coping stories and strategies. I did promise you an announcement. Yes, Lynn and I are going to be hosting a new podcast called The Greatest Moral Podcast of Our Time, which is a long-form conversation about climate change. And our first guest is Kevin Rudd. That's pretty exciting. Until then, there's always something to be scared of. Catch you later. 